0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right, let's start with a a question for you here. If you could have lunch with any person uh, from anywhere in history, who would that person be? If if you could have one hour, one hour with any historical figure, who would you choose you guys have probably heard a question like that before, right? That's like a, a go-to icebreaker question. Just a few weeks ago uh, in our community group meeting, John Fuhrer asked that question to a group of us uh, to kick off our discussion. And I think wherever John is, uh, a few weeks back, I, I said the Apostle Paul would be the person I'd like to... Jesus didn't count. We couldn't say Jesus. It had to be someone else. And so I said Paul, which is a typical pastor answer. And I just want, for my community group and for John, uh, for the record this morning, I'm I'm changing it to Luke, okay? Um, I would love to have lunch with Luke and... Uh, maybe you would too. The reason why is I, I, I love Luke. I love the writer Luke here in the third gospel. And one of the reasons that I love Luke is because of how cautiously deliberate he is as the writer of this gospel. Luke actually tells us at the beginning of the gospel how he wrote the gospel. Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he's following Matthew and Mark, and he says, It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. This means that, that Luke did his homework. He assembled his sources. He organized all his details. And then he wrote the gospel. And therefore, when we read this gospel and we see and observe certain details, that's exactly what Luke means for us to do. And I think that's especially the case when it comes to the birth narrative of Jesus, because Luke gives us more details about Jesus' birth than any other gospel. He lays it out over the course of two very long chapters. And so over the next four weeks during Advent, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the plan for us over these next four weeks is to just follow Luke's orderly account. We're just going to walk through what Luke shows us, and that means today we're looking at John the Baptist. Now, in all the Gospels, they tell us about John the Baptist, but Luke, he actually backs up and even tells us about the the conception and birth of John the Baptist, and that's because um, there are some key things about John the Baptist that Luke, he really wants us to know. And I think there are two main things that Luke wants us to know, and they have to do with witness and joy, okay? Witness and joy. These are the two parts of the sermon this morning. I want to just tell you right away what I mean when I say this. I'm talking about, when I'm talking about the witness of John the Baptist, I'm talking about his mission, okay? The witness of John the Baptist is the thing he was supposed to do. He was sent as a forerunner to Jesus. He came, John the Baptist came, to point people to Jesus, okay? That's witness, Now, when I talk about the joy of John the Baptist, I'm talking about his purpose. This is the ultimate effect that his witness was was supposed to have. John would point others to Jesus. And why did he do that? Well, he did that because of joy. So this is John the Baptist's witness and joy, his mission and his purpose. And so we're just going to look at these two parts this morning. And you see the parts here, witness and joy. Each part has two points, okay? Very symmetrical, part one, part two, two points, two points. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy scriptures. We thank you for this book that is a treasure chest for us. Thank you for its encouragement and its correction. Thank you for its wisdom and instruction. Thank you for its wonder and its power. This morning, as we gather now and worship, as we open this book, we open this book longing to hear your voice. We confess, Father, that this indeed is your word and that we are your people in Jesus and that you are at work among us by your Holy Spirit. So this morning, accomplish your work in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting here with the witness of John the Baptist and there are two things that we need to know about his witness. Number one is that John the Baptist was strange just like we should expect. All right, if you've, if you've been around church or you've read the Bible, you've heard about John the Baptist, uh, probably the thing that you know about John the Baptist is that he was strange. Uh, John the Baptist was a prophet uh, who was sent to pave the way to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. And in the Gospels, we see that John the Baptist came preaching repentance, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he was kind of an odd guy. The Gospels describe him as a man who lived alone in the wilderness, and he wore a tunic made of camel's hair, and he had a big leather belt that he tied around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, all right, which means... His appearance and his diet was different from most people, which is strange. But it wasn't only that. John the Baptist also, he won an audience with the most unlikely bunch. On the one hand, John had Pharisees and Sadducees. He had the Jewish leaders coming to him for baptism. And then on the other hand, uh, he had this following from tax collectors, and soldiers, they, they, were, they were the most hated people by Jews in Roman-occupied Judea. And, and John had them following him. So he had the Jewish leaders who burdened the people with laws. And then he had the task collectors and the soldiers who oppressed the people with their authority. Neither of these two groups liked one another. And yet John preached to both of them. And John John baptized both of them. And it, and it wasn't just these superiors. John also warned the people. He warned the Jewish crowds. John told the Jewish crowds, those who were oppressed, John told them that God's judgment was coming on them if they did not repent. He told them very clearly that their ethnic privilege would not save them. And John didn't stop there. We also see in the Gospels that John the Baptist spoke out against the Roman authorities. You remember John rebuked King Herod for his immorality and evil, and Herod ended up throwing John in jail. Which means if we look at John the Baptist, whether you were Jewish or Roman, rich or poor, strong or weak, religious or irreligious, John preached to everyone, and he was really nobody's man. And that's what made him strange. But he was strange. I want you to we need to get this. He was strange. John the Baptist was strange in all the ways that we should expect. And Luke, unlike the other gospels, Luke gives us the best explanation for this. And so as we're looking in Luke 1, first notice the parents of John the Baptist. His parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Luke tells us clearly in verse 5 that Zechariah was a priest in the division of Abijah. Now, Abijah, this, this is the this division here. This is a priestly division that goes all the way back to the days of King David. All right, so in 1 Chronicles 24, the priests get divided up into different serve teams. And they had a serve rotation that they used to carry out their duties. It's a true story. It's in the Bible, Chronicles 24. And in one of these serve teams was Abijah's serve team. It was the eighth the eighth division. And Luke tells us that Zechariah was in that same division. And then Elizabeth, Luke says, was one of the daughters of Aaron. And Aaron, of course, is a son of Levi. Aaron was a priest that goes all the way back to the days of Moses, which means both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants within Israel's Priestly line. They, they both have, both of John the Baptist's parents have this rich heritage in Israel. In verse six, Luke tells us there, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These, these are the parents of John the Baptist. Also notice, notice the predicament of his parents. Verse seven, Luke says that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were advanced in years. Okay, so here's a couple living faithfully before God. They're within the covenant of promise, but they are barren and they are old. Does that sound like anything to you? It sounds like how every good story begins in the Old Testament, right? I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth are right in line with what the Bible has shown us, all throughout the narrative of Scripture. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, man, we, we get them. We have a category for them. Also notice, though, the pattern of Elijah. This is a really important thing about John the Baptist. Um, the angel Gabriel, when he foretells Zechariah about John's birth, he says in verse 16 that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, another thing we see in all the Gospels is that John the Baptist is considered to be a prophet in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. John is God's messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah is the first one to prophesy about this messenger. And then later, the prophet Malachi prophesied about this messenger, and Malachi called him Elijah. Which means the Jewish people in this day, they are waiting for this messenger. They knew that this messenger was going to come before the Messiah. And then in Jesus, in Matthew 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist is this messenger and that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. So John is, is in the pattern of, John has the power of, the prophet Elijah, and that's what actually explains the way he dresses. That's what explains his clothes. Because in 2 Kings 1.8, the prophet Elijah is described as wearing a garment made of hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. And so anyone in this day who knew the Old Testament would have known that John the Baptist is just dressing like Elijah. And then when when it comes to John's diet... Eating bugs and wild honey is not typical, but it also wasn't unheard of because in this day, there were some Jewish monastic communities who lived out in the desert, and they ate the same things. Some of you guys, maybe you've heard before of like the, the Qumran community. This is where we get the Sea Scrolls. This would have been one of those communities. They, they lived off the desert, and they lived isolated from other people. And, and John the Baptist probably would have fit in with these guys. So he was strange. Get, get this. He, he was strange. But the people had a category for him. They had a category for his strangeness, and I think Luke is telling us here. But, but, But what made him the strangest of all, it wasn't his appearance, it wasn't his diet, but what made John the Baptist strangest of all was that he was so fiercely loyal to God. John is a prophet like Elijah, and he's also born within the priestly line, which means... That John speaks for God from within a lineage of Israelites who have represented God. And John lives up to that. He lives up to that calling. John the Baptist was amazingly, fiercely loyal to God. And we especially get that sense when we take a look at at, at Elijah. Because um, if John the Baptist came in the the pattern and the power of Elijah, then what was Elijah like? We need to know. And so the go-to story about Elijah is in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18. You probably know the story. Here's the situation. Um, Israel, the nation had turned away from the Lord to worship the false gods of Baal. And Queen Jezebel had slain the prophets of the Lord and the prophets who were not killed by her were hiding for their lives in caves. Uh, There was a severe famine in the land. Things were harsh. Things were terrible. And when King Ahab encounters Elijah, King Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. It's one of the most bizarre scenes, in my opinion, in the Bible, because Elijah sees, uh, Ahab sees Elijah, the king, the ungodly king, sees the prophet of the Lord. And he says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah replies, he's like, me? Like, you're calling me the trouble of Israel? Dude, man, look look around, okay? You're the problem here. You're the trouble here. And then, this is the most epic stories in the Bible, Elijah challenges Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal to a showdown. He wants to prove to all of Israel who is the true God. It is an amazing scene. Yahweh shows himself mighty. Um, Elijah proved himself to be fiercely loyal to God. And here's the thing, though. He was considered trouble. Elijah... Fiercely loyal to God was considered to be trouble, just like John the Baptist was considered trouble, and just like we should expect for anyone to be considered if they speak on behalf of God to a people who reject him. So, just like Elijah, John the Baptist was fiercely loyal to God in a context of people who had rebelled against God. Things had veered so far off course. Society was so far out of touch with God that when someone like John spoke the truth of God, it disrupted the entire ecosystem of values. John the Baptist, we see in the Gospels, John the Baptist had a following, but he was also very disliked. And it cost him his head. The witness of John the Baptist was as strange as it was faithful. And, and this makes us to start ask, asking questions about our own witness. Okay, so this is the second point here in this first part. The witness of John the Baptist, I think, is a model for our own witness. We we look at the witness of John the Baptist and we think about our own witness because I think that's what Luke wants us to do. We as the church have a similar mission to John the Baptist because we, too, have a priestly and prophetic function in our world. We get to point people to Jesus just like John did by representing God to others and by speaking God's truth. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. And so here is the question for us. How would we feel if people thought about us the way they thought about John the Baptist? What if we were considered strange? See, in John's day, like in our own day, Um, there were all kinds of different groups within their social strata. There there were different identities and different tribes, and they each had their own distinctives, but none of them claimed John. Now, John would have been more similar to some of these groups than he was others, but nobody owned him, you see. Nobody owned John. Only God owned John. John the Baptist, and he lived that way, which means he annoyed a lot of people. There were people in every group from every side who were bothered by John the Baptist. Because that's what it cost to be owned by God alone, you see. So what if we live that way? would we pay that cost? If if our faithful witness means people think we're strange, if our faithful witness means people do not like us, are we okay with that? Because I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, it certainly was that way with John the Baptist, and I think I think we can learn from him. I think we have a lot to learn from John the Baptist, and this is where we get into joy. All right, We right. First, we got the, the mission, the witness of John the Baptist. Now we have the purpose, the joy of John the Baptist. And I think joy is actually a theme in Luke's gospel. We get to see it right away here with John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel tells Zechariah in verse 14, he's talking about John. He says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And then just a little bit later um, in this chapter, uh, you, you remember the pregnant Elizabeth. Uh, she goes to meet her cousin Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus. And when the baby John the Baptist gets close to the baby Jesus, John the Baptist leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. And then later we see that when John the Baptist is born, this is verse 58 of chapter 1. When he's born, verse 58 says that all of Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, because of God's mercy to her, they rejoice together With her. So you have the the foretelling of John's birth was all about joy. John himself, before he was even born, was leaping for joy. And then you have when he was born, everybody who knew about him had joy. They rejoiced together. And so joy is a big part of John's story. And I want to just say two, two things about this, okay? The first is that the joy of John was because of Jesus. John the Baptist existed for Jesus, his one job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that was said about him right away to Zechariah from Gabriel. Verse 17, John, John is, is said of John, he is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then when John grew up, John was so clear about this in his ministry. He was emphatic. John was emphatic that he was not the one, that it was not about him. He was here to point people to Jesus. And so he said things like, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He said that Jesus is so so much mightier than me, I don't deserve to bend down and touch his shoestrings. He said, "Hey, I'm, bab- I'm baptizing you with water, but Jesus is going to come, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm just the setup guy. Jesus is the closer. Jesus is the greater. Jesus is the better. Jesus is the cause of joy. John brought joy only because he pointed to Jesus. People celebrated and rejoiced at John's birth because of the hope it pointed to. God was finally, after all these years, God was finally sending his Messiah just like he promised. This is it. John is here. He's paving the way. John made people happy because of who came after him. It's kind of like when you're in a crowd of people, you know, you've probably been here before. You're in a crowd of people and someone waves at you from a distance. You guys ever been there before? We we uh, This happened to me a while back at the kids' school. There was an event, a uh, play or something. And, uh, you know, there's just like herds of people who are just like moving around different sections of this building and, and uh, the herd I was in, we kind of came around the corner to an open hallway, and there was another herd of people down at the end of the hall, and there was this uh, this one mom in that group, and and she threw her hand up, waving at me, you know, and she was excited to see me, and I thought I knew her, and so what do you do in that situation, right? You, it's it's rude not to wave back, and so of course. She's waving at me and she's smiling. So I'm smiling and I'm waving at her. And about the time that my hand goes up and I do a few back and forth here, I see this other parent emerge from my left. You guys have been here. Emerge from my left and they're waving too. And then this this one parent, this other parent, they meet in the middle of the hallway and they hug and high five. And I'm just like scratching my head at this point because I realized I got it wrong. And and, uh, the, you know, the person, this is the thing, you don't know this in the moment, but it became clear in that moment. The person who was at the end of the hall was not excited to see me, they were excited to see the person behind me. And that was the whole life of John the Baptist. If John went anywhere and he saw joy, he would just duck out of the way. Every time, John saw people waving. He knew they were waving at Jesus. He knew it. Because John knew, it's it's not about me. This is all about Jesus. I'm here to point other people to Jesus. The same goes for us. The joy of John was because of Jesus. Okay. Here's the last thing I want to say. I'm really excited to say this. This is the part I've been looking forward to because I think this is a neat thing in the Gospel of Luke. Um, This is what it is. This is number two, so section two, part two, number two. Here we go. John the Baptist introduced a joy that transcends fear. So joy, I think, is a theme in Luke's Gospel and so is fear. And this is what I would like to ask him at lunch. I'd like to ask him about how these things relate. Because it's amazing how we see these themes together. I want to show you this, okay? First, look at verse 11. Remember that Zechariah was performing his priestly duties, and suddenly an angel appeared to him. The angel's name is Gabriel. Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. And then in verse 12, we read, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell on him. That's fear. Zechariah is afraid of this encounter. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. First there's fear. And then there's this command not to fear. Look at verse 14. Gabriel says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. So if we just put all these together, it's fear, the words not to fear, and then there's joy. You got it? Fear, don't fear, joy. Okay, let's look at Mary. Verse 26, Gabriel visits Mary to foretell the birth of Jesus. And when he appears, he speaks to her. And verse 29 says, but she was greatly troubled. It's the exact same word used with Zechariah, except with Mary, it's just more intense. Mary was greatly troubled. But then look at verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. God is going to fulfill His purpose. The king is going to be born. His name is Jesus. And this is a lot for Mary to take in, but she trusts in God. And later in chapter one, she sings a song of praise to God. And she says right away in verse 46 My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So it's first fear, then don't fear, and then joy. Skip ahead a little bit later to the night when Jesus was born. There were some shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And guess how the shepherds responded to the angel. Luke 2 verse 9. They were filled with fear. Then in verse 10, guess what the angel said. The angel said to them, Fear not. But why? Why shouldn't I be afraid? I'm I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a shepherd. And look, I have a lot to be afraid of. Why shouldn't I be afraid? And the angel said, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Don't fear joy. We see this in Luke's gospel so clearly. It starts with John the Baptist. Then we see it with Mary. Then we see it with the shepherds. And I I think we're supposed to see this pattern here, not just because it's part of the story. It is part of the story. But we're supposed to see this pattern here because this is just how it goes with life in this world. There's a lesson here when it comes to life. So much of our experience in this world has to do with fear. If we were to slow down, if we just slow down and thought about our day moment by moment, the amount of different fears we deal with is almost overwhelming I thought about this. I was talking to some guys yesterday. I've been thinking about this. It's like in the morning, this is what happens to me. In the morning, my alarm clock goes off early. If I I wake up the first time my alarm clock goes off, you know the first thing I'm afraid of? I didn't get enough sleep. If I hit snooze a uh, few times and then I wake up, you know the first thing I'm afraid of? I overslept. Every single day, there's always these encroachment of fears little fears, big fears, our, our lives are consumed with fears. In fact, I think that most of the hard things we go through in this life always comes back to fear. Every single one of us has issues with fear at some level, and we call it different names. You might call it worry or anxiety. We might call it stress or busyness. But whatever we call it, it all comes back to fear. And the underlying fear to all other fears is the fear that God is against us. That's what is the most terrifying. Is God really for me? Does God really love me? Does God even care about me? I mean, deep down, that is our greatest fear, and it has been the greatest fear for every human going back to Genesis 3. And so over and over again in the Bible, we see what God says to that fear. God speaks into our fear, and he says... Don't fear. But he doesn't just tell us not to fear. He doesn't just tell us to stop fearing. He replaces our fear with the promise of joy. God lifts our hearts and he comforts our hearts with the words, I am for you and I love you and I will be enough for you. And this is not emotional abracadabra. God does not just drop a sentiment on us. But God says, don't fear because joy is coming. You don't have to live in fear today because of the promise of joy guaranteed tomorrow. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning and it will be joy. It will be all joy. It will be true and lasting joy because Jesus right now is the definitive word from God to us. I am for you. I love you. I am enough for you. Jesus is our joy. That's why Jesus died for you. That's why Jesus was raised from the dead for you, you see. Jesus right now stands. He lives right now. Jesus lives as the definitive message from God to us I'm for you. I love you. I am enough for you. And it's very interesting to me how the Gospel of Luke ends. This is the last chapter of Luke, in Luke 24. This is after Jesus has been crucified and then risen. Uh, The disciples are all huddled together in a house, and they're in despair. And then in Luke 24, verse 36, Luke says that Jesus himself appeared, and he stood among them, and he said, peace to you. And do you know how the disciples responded? Verse 37 They were startled and frightened. And do you know what Jesus said to their fears? Jesus said in verse 38, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. In other words, Jesus speaks into their fear and he says, Don't be afraid, it's me. Don't be afraid, it's me. And then Jesus. Unfolded for them the plan of God to save the world. The crucified one is now the risen one, and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations. And after they heard this, what did the disciples do? This is the very end of Luke's gospel. Luke says, And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually. In the temple, blessing God. Fear, don't fear, joy. And it's all because of Jesus. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus offers that to you. Like in this moment, Jesus offers that to you. That's what this table, this table is about. That's the message of this table here at the table. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And the cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. This table is the reminder of Jesus's death. And the purpose of Jesus's death is that we don't fear. It's that the greatest enemy... Against our souls has now been defeated, which means however dark, however difficult it gets, Jesus lives right now as our joy, and we can have him right now. At this table, Jesus gives himself to us again and again. We can have him and the joy that is in him. And so this morning, this is what I want us to do. As The servers come and prepare the table as we are going to serve the bread and the cup to you. I know that in our church, there's a lot, there's a lot of of fear in our hearts. A lot of darkness, a lot of heaviness, lots of fear. There There are all kinds of dark, hard things that are going on. So, this morning, this is what I want us to do. As we take the bread and as we take the cup, I want you to hear. The words of Jesus to you, don't be afraid. It's me. So those are his words to you if you trust in him. If you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to eat and drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.